Verse 48 then continues. It says, He brought me to the porch of the temple and measured each side pillar of the porch, five cubits on each side. And the width of the gate was three cubits on each side. The length of the porch was 20 cubits, and the width 11 cubits, and the stairway by which it ascended were columns belonging to the side pillars on each side. And you need to know that these pillars are not load-bearing. The temple doesn't need the pillars. Solomon's temple did not need the pillars. They were set up. They're ornamental as opposed to uh, structural. 1 Kings 7, verse 21 says Solomon set up the pillars at the porch of the nave. And that's what we're talking about here in these verses. At the nave. What's the nave? The nave is the holy place. Okay, So the nave is where the first place that you actually enter inside the temple is the holy place. And only the priests can go in there. And then further in, of course, is the holy of holies, the most holy place. But just outside the nave, as you go up the steps to head into the main temple uh, sanctuary, there are these two huge pillars... For Solomon, he actually named the pillars. The one on the right side was named Yaquin, which means Yahweh establishes. And then he set the left pillar and he named it Boaz, which means in it is strength. Not in him is strength, but in it is strength. What's, what's the big deal? Well, it is the temple. Which means there is strength in the temple. In other words, the presence of God is the strength that is in the temple. And while these, polar, these pillars are only ornamental, they didn't hold up the temple, they point to the one who does. They point to the one who establishes, to the one who is strength, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said in Colossians 2, verse 6, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just like Yaquin and Boaz, the pillars, you are built up and established in your faith, just as you are instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Verse 41, continuing, Then He brought me to the nave, and He measured the side pillars, six cubits wide on each side was the width of the side pillar. The width of the entrance was ten cubits, Okay, if a cubit is that long cubit, it'd be 21 inches. So, do the math. And uh, the sides of the entrance were five cubits on each side. He measured the length of the nave, 40 cubits, and the width, 20 cubits. And note this, then he went inside and measured each side pillar of the doorway, two cubits, and the doorway, six cubits high, and the width of the doorway, seven cubits, He measured its length, 20 cubits, and the width, 20 cubits, before the nave. And he said to me, this is the most holy place. The holy of holies. So you go into the nave, the the holy place, and you pass on in beyond that, through that doorway, into the holy of holies, the most holy place. It's 20 cubits square. So larger than 20 feet square. It's the dwelling place of holiness. Now, some of the rabbis who have gone over this and studied this through the years have had some frustration, along with some Christian commentators, by the fact that Ezekiel, himself a priest, got some things wrong. He, he missed some things here. In his detailed description of this, of this great temple, he, he omitted some critical elements that really should be there. So clearly Ezekiel doesn't know what he's talking about. Because he left stuff out. And it's important stuff. Let me give you some examples of what he left out 
of the temple design. First of all, of the three annual pilgrimage feasts, now there were seven major feasts through the year that we talked about recently, three of those feasts required pilgrimage by, by all the men of Israel at least to go down to, or to go up to Jerusalem and to celebrate those feasts. Passover, Pentecost, and Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Those were the three big ones. Only Passover and Sukkot are mentioned with relation to the Millennial Kingdom. In fact, I think recently I said only Sukkot, only the Feast of Tabernacles, but apparently Passover too. So we will celebrate both of those. But of these annual pilgrimage feasts, there's one that's not mentioned at all. Pentecost. There's no mention of Pentecost, Ezekiel. Well, why? Because Pentecost is past tense. Pentecost has had its fulfillment. In the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church, we have already seen Pentecost, that feast, that festival, anticipated the church. And so the church rules and reigns with Jesus in the kingdom. But gang, the kingdom is promised to Israel. It is not a church thing. It is a Jewish thing. And it's a fulfillment of Jewish promises. And so Pentecost is unnecessary. Fulfilled. Check it off. There's no Ark of the Covenant here, Ezekiel. No mention. Nine chapters. Why? Because in that 20 by 20 Holy of Holies is the throne room of none other than Jesus Christ. And you don't need the Ark of the Covenant to portray Jesus when Jesus is there. When He sits upon the mercy seat. When He is the one right there. Citizens will be able to come to the temple and come before the throne of grace to find mercy in time of need. Hebrews 4.16 No Pentecost, no Ark, unnecessary. There's no high priest in this description. There's no king in this description. Well, you know that's easy. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the king. Zechariah said in Zechariah 6.13, It is He who will build the temple of the Lord. He will bear the honor and He will sit and rule on His throne. And thus He will be a priest on His throne. King and priest. And he will bear uh, both offices. The council of peace will be between both offices. So he's priest, he's king. No need to mention any other. By the way, notice this in verse 3. Then he went inside. The surveyor goes inside, enters the most holy place. Ezekiel doesn't. Ezekiel goes with him into the nave. He brought me into the nave, but Ezekiel stays in the holy place. He's a priest. He can go in the holy place. But only the high priest could go into the holy of holies. And yet we see the surveyor go into the holy of holies. Another hint that I think it's Jesus taking him on this tour of the millennial temple. Now, verses 5 through 26 covers some ground. He measures the wall, the side chambers, a separate 500 square cubit building I showed you that was on the west side of the temple. Again, no one really knows what that's for. God does. God's got the whole thing planned out. He's got rooms that are necessary and chambers and galleries and He's got this big building on the west side of the temple. It's all for a purpose. And in these verses also, Ezekiel measures three-story galleries that are around the temple and they kind of... the bottom story is the largest and then it goes up a level and it's a little shorter and then it goes up a little it's a little shorter and so each story bears up the others and he describes in these verses carved doors and latticed windows throughout but skip down to verse 16 I just want to point out a couple of things in this section verse 16 
It says, the thresholds were latticed, the thresholds, the latticed windows, and the galleries round about their three stories opposite the threshold were paneled with wood all around. And from the ground to the windows, but the windows were covered, over the entrance and to the inner house, and on the outside and on all the wall, all around, inside and outside by measurement. Now note this. It was carved with cherubim and palm trees. And a palm tree was between cherub and cherub. So, you know, uh, one after the other, you have a cherub, a palm tree, a cherub, a palm tree. Every cherub had two faces. A man's face toward the palm tree on one side, and a young lion's face toward the palm tree on the other side. They were carved all around the house. Verse 20, From the ground to above the entrance, cherubim and palm trees were carved, as well as on the wall of the nave. A couple of things to note here. Why do they carve why do the carved cherubim only have two faces? I mean I you know, Ezekiel chapter one, Ezekiel chapter ten, cherubim have four faces, right? Face of a lion, face of a man, face of a bull. And what's the other one? Face of an eagle. So four faces, but on these carvings we only see two faces. Now, artistically that makes sense because you have a cherub here and then you've got a palm tree and a palm tree, right? And the cherub is looking in two directions at the palm tree. So if you're carving two-dimensionally, you would only really be able to show two faces. I guess you could show one facing out, but it'd be easier just in the silhouette carving to have a lion's face going one way and a man's face going the other. But then why on the next one doesn't he have you know, a, a bull's face and an eagle's face? And then it's only the lion and the man. And the lion and the man carve throughout. Maybe it's just because they're looking one side to the other, or maybe it's because the faces of the lion and the man depict both the humanity and the divinity of Christ, which are critical. And we will see that in the millennial kingdom, both Son of God and Son of Man present in that temple. And so the cherubim representing, I believe, divinity and humanity in one, calling attention to Jesus. Something else is missing here compared to Solomon's temple. If you read through, in fact, an interesting study, and we didn't have time for it tonight, would be to go to 1 Kings 6 and 7, study through Solomon's temple, and then come over here and study through Ezekiel's temple and just go back and forth and compare the two. But here's a big difference. There's no silver or gold anywhere. This temple is not covered in silver and gold. All you see are carvings and panels of wood. Now, in the Millennial Kingdom, with earth restored to a pristine state, an Eden-like condition, I don't know exactly what all that means, but Isaiah was pretty clear that it's going to be a perfect world once again. Jesus is going to restore it. So perhaps there will be that water canopy around the world again. Perhaps, you know, the sun's not going to have the harmful rays. Things won't rot. So you could use wood and it's going to last a long time. And we only need a thousand years. But I think there's more to this. Who needs precious metal when a perfect Messiah is present? Jesus is there. And in Solomon's temple, and even in the second temple, and the retrofit of the second temple by Herod, the gold, the silver, the ivory, all of these beautiful colors, these beautiful metals, were to depict something beyond the earth. They were to point to something divine, something heavenly, something holy. Well, the divine, the heavenly, and the holy is there in Jesus Christ. So back in the nave of the temple... The holy place, notice verse 22, tells us this. The altar, now we're in the nave, the holy place, the altar was of wood. Three cubits high, and its length, two cubits, its corners, 
and its base and its sides were of wood. And he said to me, This is the table that is before the Lord. The table before the Lord. That table, that altar is the altar of incense. Because we're in the holy place. There were three pieces of furniture in the holy place in the temple prior. Right On the left side as you came in was the golden lampstand, the golden menorah. Straight in front of you is the altar of incense. And then over on the right side would be the table of showbread. In this temple, no menorah. No golden menorah. Don't need it. No table of showbread either. Don't need it. You already have the light of the world and the bread of life right there in Jesus. What do you need Him for? Yeah, but then why is the altar of incense there? And furthermore, it's not overlaid with gold. It's just wood. Man, if you light incense on that, eventually it's going to go up in flames. That's not a very good idea. Well, I don't think they're going to be lighting incense on it. Why won't they light incense on it? Because incense is also representative of prayer. And rather than a priest coming in for you and offering incense up to the Lord, symbolized in the sweet-smelling smoke and offering prayers as representative of the prayers of the people, rather, the holy place has one simple wooden table that divides between itself, right in front of the doorway, open doorway, into the holy of holies where Jesus Himself is seated upon a throne. And I think that's marvelous. Because prayer is direct. Prayer is not indicated. It's not represented. It's just prayed. To be able to pray directly like that. Now again, the historicists and the allegorists are bugged. (laughs) But it's just a representation. Yeah, but, but what about the veil? What about the veil? Well, you know what the Lord did to the veil. He ripped it in half. At the crucifixion, there is no more veil. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew writer tells us Jesus became the veil. He is the veil through which we pass to get to the holiness of the Father. We have to go through Jesus. Hebrews 10.19 We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. Jesus Himself, the veil. It's marvelous. Isaiah 65, verse 24, also says, It will come to pass before they call, I will answer, and while they're still speaking, I will hear. How come? Because you don't have to go through incense in prayer. You just go to Jesus. Speaking directly. Apparently the only division, again, between the holy place and the holy of holies was that simple wooden table before the Lord. No table of showbread. Jesus is the bread of life. No glowing lampstand. Jesus is the light of the world. And He's the center of this temple. And if you don't think there will be light emanating out of there, you you haven't read enough about the resurrected Jesus. You don't have to have a golden lampstand to light the holy place or the holy of holies. Jesus will light it just fine all by Himself. All of this to say, in 1979, Lynn DeShazo wrote a simple but profound song of worship. We sang it tonight. And I want to remind you of the words, Lord, You are more precious than silver. And Lord, You are more costly than gold. Lord, You are more beautiful than diamonds. And nothing I desire compares to You. Amen? Chapter 42. Let's keep going. The first 12 verses give even more measurements of the galleries and the chambers of the temple complex. And you can read those 12 verses in your own time. 
I don't want to take you through them one by one at a time. Lots of cubits, and I start to trip over cubits. But read through that. Think about it. But the point is this. In those 12 verses, we're reminded again, God plans ahead. God details His plans to the, to the very last cubit, to the inch. He knows what this temple is going to look like. He knows what He's doing. Jesus said in Luke 14, verse 28, Which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Don't think for a moment God didn't calculate the cost before creation began. The cost would be His own blood to see you and me come home. But He calculates everything. He thinks it through. Jesus said, Otherwise... When he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build what he was not able to finish. And I remind you all, God is going to finish it. He's going to finish everything he said he was going to finish. He's going to complete it. He's going to complete a good work in you. He's promised to do it. And if he can lay out these designs for the temple so far ahead of time with the absolute guarantee that this temple will be built then please don't think He is incapable of completing you until that final day. He's at work. And He knows what He's doing. By the way, as an example of allegory, these first 12 verses of chapter 42, I saw several commentarians um, try to cram these three-story chambers that are described here into Jesus' promise of a place prepared for us. John 14, verses 1-3. through Behold, I go to prepare a place for you, and when I prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may also be. Where did Jesus go? <laughs> he went up. Heaven, yes. I'm going to prepare a place for you. He didn't go lift off of the Mount of Olives and then make a beeline for the Temple Mount. <laughs> He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may also be. That's where I want you to be. That's where we go when the church is called up. That's the place prepared for us. This is the place prepared for Israel. The Temple Mount. The Temple Complex. The restoration of the land. Ezekiel's going to get into that too. But people try to allegorize these things. And, and you know what? Yeah, it's heartwarming to think I might have my own private apartment there in the Temple Complex. Cool. Wonderful. Exciting. No. No. I mean, I don't want to take anything away from the fact that Jesus is preparing a place, but it's not on the Temple Mount. This is a different place. Well, how do we know? Ezekiel tells us exactly what all these chambers are for. Look at verse 13. He said to me, The north chambers and the south chambers, which are opposite the separate area, they are the holy chambers where the priests who are near to the Lord shall eat the most holy things... There they shall lay the most holy things, the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, for the place is holy. Okay, so one of the reasons for these galleries, these chambers, priestly dining rooms. (laughs) This is where they will eat their portion. And exactly as it is stated in the perfect law of God, the priests have certain portions from the meat offerings and the grain offerings, as described, and they eat those. And part of it is the way that the Lord sustained the priests. So they'll have their dining rooms where they they do the offering, they bring the meat, they go and they eat it as God prescribed for them to do. The first five chapters of the book of Leviticus in Torah law detail the five offerings for Israel. 
And those are the burnt offering, the grain offering. I'll repeat these if you like. The peace offering, the sin offering, and finally the guilt offering. Five distinct offerings, and God designed each one, and He described each one to a T, just as He's describing in explicit detail the temple, He described the offerings, which are, again, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. And what's marvelous, and I encourage you to go back if you haven't done this, and study through the first five chapters of Leviticus, because every one of those five offerings are cameos of the Christ. Every offering points specifically to Jesus and the way it's required and the way it's designed. What's interesting is Ezekiel omits one of the five offerings. There's one that's not there. And that's the peace offering. No peace offering. Possibly because the law didn't require the peace offering to be eaten in a holy place. And so, since this is all about the temple, maybe the peace offering would be irrelevant to what's going on right here because it didn't have to be eaten right there. But I think there's an even better reason, and I'd just like to read this to you. Ezekiel, or Ephesians, sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, which says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace. You don't need a peace offering when the peace offering is right there in the person of Jesus Christ. He's our peace. Who made both groups into one, He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so that in Himself He might make the two, that is Jew and Gentile, into one man. Amazing. Thus establishing peace. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. By it having put to death the enmity. And He came and He preached peace to you who were far away. And peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. That is Jew and Gentile becoming one man. He is the peace. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you all are, you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. He is our peace. And by the way, if you've ever wondered how in the world Gentile officials in Jesus' government and Jewish citizens in His kingdom are going to get along, there you go. He is our peace. Well, how come they get to rule and reign? You're not going to have Jewish people complaining that the church are part of the government of Christ. And you're not going to have any of those in the government of Christ going, we didn't get to you know, have our own kingdom like this. Okay, you moron, you are part of the kingdom. I better say it now because I don't think I'm going to be calling anyone moron in the kingdom. So there you go. He is our peace. And so whether the peace offering is just eaten somewhere else, and by the way, I love the peace offering. It's, it's just barbecue with Jesus. 
You know? You bring your offering and, and God says, by the way, you can have some of this. Great. And so you take it and you and you eat it. You know, maybe they're on the Temple Mount. Maybe you take it down into the Kadron Valley and have a nice picnic with the family, but it's to be eaten there in Jerusalem before the Lord. But it doesn't have to be in the holy place like all the other offerings. So, priestly dining rooms. Note this in verse 14. One other reason for all of these chambers. Verse 14 says, When the priests enter, they shall not go out into the outer court from the sanctuary without laying their laying there their garments in which they minister, for they are holy. They shall put on other garments, then they shall approach that which is for the people. Wow. What a great picture. Now understand what's going on. The priests, when they go in to minister before the Lord, have certain garments. When they come out, they got to go into these side chambers and they got to change and lay aside those garments and then they put on their common serving garments to go out and serve the people. And that's exactly what our High Priest Jesus did. He laid aside the holy garments of His heavenly glory. He put on the humble skin of humanity to come and to deal with you and with me. But when He returns to heaven, He he puts back on the glory that is His to wear in the high priestly way. And by the way, it is a great example of our approach to the world. He's our example. Paul said as much. Philippians 2.5 Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not require or regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. And Paul said, that's your example. Understand, that's your example. Okay? So, so what do I draw from that, Lord? Listen. When we come out of our heavenly place of worship, when we come out of our our place of fellowship, we don't go out in the world dressed holier than thou. We lay aside our garments of of holiness, of, of heavenly worship, here in this holy place. And then we go out into the world. We don't wear the fashion and the style of the world either. We wear the humble garments of a servant. So we minister to God in holiness in a way that, yes, we understand. You know, I think about this from time to time. We lift our hands in worship and praise. Some people will get down on their knees and bow down in worship. There are those who will quietly be praying in tongues. There are others who are, who are just expressing worship to the Lord. And in some cases, people from outside the church who don't understand the biblical nature of these holy things will just go, weird. You know, they might pull out a lighter and go, okay. Is that what what we're doing here? And it's okay in the presence of and in the fellowship of believers and in the worship of the Lord there are holy things that we do. And it's just it's a holy response. And you could say very much so we wear holy garments when we worship the Lord. But we walk out the door and we don't walk into work and go boy, you know what? I'm going to pray for you, brother. Lord Jesus, I just... Brother non-believer here needs you, Jesus. You know, what does that say to the world? And I'm not saying that you don't live for Jesus. I'm just saying you do it with humility. That you wear the garments of a servant. That you care for people. And you love them in a way that doesn't puff you up like, you know, the priests were not allowed to walk out wearing, you know, the ephod. And the, the breast piece and, and, the, and the big helmet with the God is holy and the golden plate. And he, they couldn't do that. You lay that aside. 
We put on humble garments when we walk out of the place of worship. It looks like this. Paul says, Colossians 3.12, As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, absolutely holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, and kindness, humility, and gentleness, and yes, patience. The garments of serving. Verse 15, let's finish this up for tonight. Now when he had finished measuring the inner house, he brought me out by the way of the gate which faced toward the east and measured it all around. He measured on the east side with the measuring reed. 500 reeds by the measuring reed. Now he's using that that flaxen reed, okay? 500 reeds by the measuring reed. On the south side, he measured 500 reeds by the measuring reed. He turned to the west side and measured 500 reeds with the measuring reed. He measured it on the four sides. It had a wall all around, the length 500 and the width 500 to divide between the holy and the profane. The Millennial Temple Complex, as you saw in the picture, why don't we put the picture back up just one more time. In that picture, what you see is a complex that is a perfect square. In fact, what's interesting is that the temple in New Jerusalem, that the New Jerusalem itself will be like this complex, but it will be a perfect cube. Okay, not just a square, but but an entire cube. And we'll get into that maybe when we study Revelation in a few years. Kidding. Um, So it's a perfect square. That square is 765,625 square feet. It's roughly the size you could fit inside that square that you're looking at right now, more than 13 football fields. This is a big area. It dwarfs the area of both the first and the second temple complexes. It's far bigger. If you were to transplant this, put it right on the temple mount today, it would take more than two-thirds of the entire temple mount. It's massive. It's huge. In fact, it's so big, running lengthwise, because the temple mount is kind of a trapezoidal uh, box, it's so big that it would actually probably be hanging off the east side and the west side. It's massive. Huge. We're going to need a bigger mount. And in fact, what you understand when you, when you consider this is that even the retrofit of the second temple by Herod, he retrofitted it. He took Mount Moriah, which was a ridge, and the temple was on a, a level place at the top of the mount. He took that and he basically set a box on it and filled it in with dirt so that the temple complex ends up being 37 uh, acres. And when you stand on it today, you're standing on that temple complex. The walls go down, and those are the, those Herodian walls you actually can see. The western wall is a wall that Herod himself built up when he made it into a big box so that he could uh, put his retrofit temple bigger on there. So he developed that, but more changes are going to be required. More changes have to happen for this temple to, to settle and, and to sit on top of Mount Moriah. It, it couldn't even work today. Topographical changes have to take place. And Revelation 11, verse 13, tells us at the midpoint of the tribulation, in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city of Jerusalem fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. By the way, the Muslim quarter is, r- is roughly a tenth of the city. So I don't know if there's a connection. 
Zechariah chapter 14 has this to say in verse 9. The Lord will be king over all the earth, and that day the Lord will be the only one, and His name the only one. And all the land will be changed into a plain. From Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will then rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate, as far as the place of the first gate to the quarter gate, and the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. People will live in it, and there will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell securely. Jerusalem will rise. How in the world is Jesus going to go through that eastern gate if it's underground? Hint, hint. It's going to rise. Well, last question for tonight. What is this wall between the holy and the profane all about. Now, some think, and I've shared this before, actually a possibility that it might hint at a wall built between the third Jewish temple and the Muslim Dome of the Rock. The third Jewish temple. Remember, there's been two. Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's temple. The second temple was retrofitted, but it was still the second temple. The third temple is what we call the Tribulation Temple. And it is one that apparently, according to Daniel and according to Revelation, according to Paul and 2 Thessalonians, there will be a temple built in the Tribulation, probably as a peace offering by this man of peace, Antichrist. That's the third temple. And so some have said, well, perhaps then that this wall between the holy and the profane is built there on the Temple Mount, there in the Tribulation, to separate out the Jewish temple from the Dome of the Rock. And by the way, the Dome of the Rock is pretty profane. Mm -hmm. If you've seen it or seen pictures of it, there are writings in uh, Arabic all around the top of it. Things like, God is not begotten, nor does He beget. Profaning the virgin birth of Jesus. Profaning Jesus as God. Several things written around like that that are are anti-Christian statements. There's a... Well, there's a face of Satan right there on the side of the Dome of the Rock, isn't there? Yeah, there is. <laughs> Very interesting to see. It's just in the ivory of the, of the side, but you, you look at it and go, I think I would have used some different ivory if I was the craftsman here. It's a pretty scary-looking face. The profane. So maybe that's what we're talking about, to separate, to divide between the holy and the profane so that Antichrist comes up with this marvelous idea, hey, we'll build the Jewish temple there just to the north of the Dome of the Rock, leave the Dome of the Rock, we'll put a big wall between the two and the Jews can have their part and the Muslims can have their part and everybody goes, oh, man of peace, you're so brilliant. That's a possibility. However, the third temple is the Tribulation Temple, not the Millennial Temple. And the only way for that to be a connection here would be if that tribulation temple is ultimately not destroyed but is retrofitted by Messiah when He comes. That He takes the temple already there and the wall already there. And I I think that that might be adding to the text. So I apologize for having done that. (laughs) The final temple gives us a bigger and better explanation for why there's a wall dividing between the holy and the profane. This is the wall gang that goes all the way around this complex. So you can see it there. It's the very outer wall that he measured all the way around. That wall to separate from the holy, which is the temple complex, the entire temple complex, and the profane on the outside. The word holy is kadesh. It means holy. The word profane is chol. 
chol in the Hebrew. And chol means profane, but it also means common. Anything that's not holy. Anything that's not specifically designated as set apart, apart unto the Lord. So think about this. Ezekiel 43, verse 12 says, This is the law of the house. Its entire area on the top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. This is the law of the house. The kingdom may be heaven on earth, but it's still not heaven. It may feel perfect. It'll be marvelous. We will already be in our glorified bodies, but it's still on earth. And humanity at that time will still be completely capable of sin. It's going to be a lot harder. You've got Jesus there. You don't have Satan running around messing things up. You know, you've got the royal government of Jesus throughout the world encouraging righteousness. You have truth prevailing. Oh, I cannot wait for that. Just for truth to be spoken everywhere. So sin's going to be a lot more difficult, but it's still possible. In fact, it's interesting. Isaiah 65 verse 20 says, No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days, for the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. And it's entirely likely what is indicated there is that someone who dies at the age of 100 is accursed because of their sin. Sin brings death. And so there will be those who don't live as long. And the primary reason people don't live a long, long time, perhaps even through the entire millennium, is sin. Sin without forgiveness. Holiness, holiness does not cease to matter to the Lord. So understand that even though Jesus is now in person, ruling and reigning from this beautiful temple, there in Jerusalem. And he's not stuck there, by the way. I'm sure he's going to be able to make his rounds around the world. He'll do whatever he wants to do. But don't miss this. Holiness matters to the Lord. Holiness has always mattered to the Lord. 1 Timothy 6.14 says, Keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone, talking about Jesus, possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. Wait a minute, is that Jesus or God? Yes! To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen? Amen. And you know there's that aspect of God that no man has ever seen presented to us in our understanding as God the Father. And then Jesus put on the earth suit so that we could see God in the flesh and see Him function. But what we need to understand is that Jesus now back in His glorified state, John saw Him and fell dead. This same Jesus will now be ruling and reigning on planet earth and that Temple Mount complex must be holy and will be holy. Everything outside of it will be common. Perfect. Paradise. Wonderful. Beautiful. But common. But the Temple Mount and the Temple Complex will be holy. And what I'm getting at here as we close is simply this. I think sometimes in our somewhat casual Western approach to Jesus, 
You know, Jesus is the man. He's my guy, yeah. I think we need to draw back and remember how astoundingly holy Jesus Christ really is. Unapproachable? No. But absolutely holy? (laughs) We have no idea. And so, Father, we bow before You. And Lord Jesus, we humble ourselves recognizing that though You became flesh and dwelt among us, though You are Son of God and Son of Man, You are most holy. And we worship You. And it is not just words when we say that we bow beneath Your authority. King of kings and Lord of lords. And we recognize this temple must be a most holy place. Well, I ask You, Lord Jesus, would You make the temple of Your church And would you make each of our temples, the temples of our bodies, most holy places for your spirit to reside until you come. In Jesus' name, amen.